Welcome to The Real Python Podcast. This is episode 181. Have you wondered what the future holds as a Python developer with the current growth of artificial intelligence systems? What are the hidden benefits of learning to program in Python and practicing computational thinking? This week on the show, we speak with author Lawrence Gray about his upcoming book, Mastering Python, a problem-solving approach. Lawrence shares how learning Python helped him through a dark and trying time. He developed lifelong skills he wants to pass along through teaching and authoring a book. We discuss what you can do to prepare for a future where coding jobs are automated through AI. He shares ways that Python can help build higher-order thinking skills required by these future careers. We also talk about how Python can help with computational thinking and promote cognitive development. This episode is brought to you by Site247. Site247 is an AI-powered, full-stack monitoring platform by Zoho Corp. Site247 helps developers optimize their application performance and deliver a smooth digital experience. Check out site247.com. That's S-I-T-E-24-X-7.com. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, Larry, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah, I got excited by this email you sent to me, kind of reached out to me on, on LinkedIn that you're uh, an acquaintance of uh, Matt Harrison, or I guess maybe a colleague. You've, you've done some work with him in the past, and you said that you're writing a book. And so I was very intrigued by the first chapter that you sent to me. The book is titled Mastering Python, A Problem-Solving Approach. And you're kind of in the process of writing it, but you wanted to come on and talk about this first chapter that you've written. And maybe you can tell the audience why you thought the topic of the first chapter is kind of unusual in this case and wanted to come in and talk about it. Yeah, so this chapter really was like a culmination of what I experienced when learning Python. And I thought that this experience wasn't just unique to me, but unique to a lot of people that come from different points or origins and getting into Python. My story is a little bit dark. Okay. And so I thought I I could share that and people would connect. Plus, I add in this element of changing the way that we think, right? And we bring in the ideal of we're entering into a world now in which a lot of work is being automated. Yeah. And it's been automated by AI. So what does that leave for us as humans? Well, we have human intelligence and we have creativity. And that's going to be what saves us, right? <laughs> yeah. And I, and, and I wanted to put that forth and helping people realize that Python could be that tool that allows you to change the way that you think about problems. Cool. Yeah, I, it's definitely, I think the focus that I have for many of the conversations I have on the show is that why am I excited about Python and, and what you can do with it? And it always comes down to 
I'm not super interested in like showing like how smart I am, but I'm interested in solving your problems and helping you and getting things done. And and that's what excites me and, and kind of moves me forward to want to continue learning. And creativity is a big part of it too. Like the idea of, you know, building things and, and making new things. And so that's the one kind of scary thing I think about some of the things that are happening in the quote unquote AI world is that there's a lot of like writing that's people are experimenting with doing. And, and I have maybe been this sort of sour note on that um, because I don't like getting into things like creating images or writing and so forth. And so I'm kind of excited by what you're saying and this idea of like, hey, what can this do for us? Like, how how can we think about it in a different way if these, uh, you know, if it's coming to take our jobs? Like, what? <laughs> how can we move beyond that and above it? And so uh, that's uh, partly what I thought might be kind of a fun conversation, a, a kind of a, a positive outlook on it. So is that the goal of your book or what's the the primary purpose of your book? The, well, I would say it's two to threefold. Okay. So the main thing is to help people become Python programmers. I think at a very basic level, this is what you need in order to do this. Along that way, what you're saying about problem solving, Python is really good tool for solving problems. Yeah, yeah. And I realized that you can actually learn how to solve problems a lot more efficiently, think a little bit differently, and do that. And so the book is to help you along this route of learning how to program elevating your cognitive abilities along the same way. So that's overarching things that we're going to change the way that you think about solving problems, right? Okay. So you mentioned that you had this unique background of getting into Python. I think people have heard my story several times on the show, so I'll cover it, but it is a unique path. And so it definitely kind of involves like creativity and coming back and you know, getting involved kind of late in life uh, to programming, and that's why I'm excited to you know share it with other people and get you know other people involved, and definitely people who've had other careers. I want them to be aware that hey, Python could be a big part of that for you, and and so that's something that I always want to champion on the show. So tell us a little bit about your background there. Um, it's not again not something we usually do a ton of on the show. We don't usually do like you know histories of people. But I think this is kind of a unique one that kind of covers in. And then also what you mentioned there of like helping you get through, you know, some struggles in your life. Yeah. So I will begin here. I'm going to begin. I was a PhD student at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Okay, in my mid-20s. I was harboring dreams uh, of winning a Nobel Prize. I was doing some very exciting work. However, when I turned 30, I received the life-changing diagnosis. I was bipolar. And I found myself in this severe depressive state that incapacitated my ability to read, to write. During this period, I'm trying to finish my dissertation. My wife becomes a crucial role in that part. She records my dissertation on the computer as I spoke it aloud because that's the only way that I could actually get my dissertation out because I couldn't do it myself. So despite these challenges, two significant positive things emerge. First, I was fortunate I was at Hopkins, right? Widely regarded as the top hospital in the world, right? Second, I discovered Python 
And this programming language profoundly impacted what I would call the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex for me. And this is the brain area responsible for cognitive flexibility. Okay. Because that's what I lost, right? I struggled with simple cognitive tasks for over a decade, but coding in Python was a different story between Python structure. So I guess let me step back. This experience led me to believe that there's a unique connection between Python's, the way that it's structured and human cognition, because it was the only thing that I could do. And I was getting progressively better the more and more I did Python. Hmm. So over the years, I just practiced Python and those simple abilities to do abstract thinking again were coming back. And in essence, I relearned how to think through Python and it was a lifeline for me. That's amazing. What were the kinds of uh, things that you were creating along the line? What what were your experiments there? <laughs> so one of the things that I was creating or end up creating is simple tools like e-commerce tools. So I built this system to actually peg Amazon for prices of of toys. Okay, and I would scrape. Walmart, Target, all this stuff, and look for arbitrage. There's a difference between the prices of what something is selling in the store and what's selling in Amazon. Okay. Right? Yeah. And so, and then I could find that difference. And I figured out how to do that. And I was running a Flask front end to actually display everything. And I figured this out. I later went on to start doing things as far as doing predictions for foodborne illness outbreaks. Okay. Doing predictions for that for the CDC in which we were trying to predict what would be the next spot that was experience of a uh, foodborne uh, illness outbreak. And so those were the type of things that I was slowly, I didn't get to the foodborne illness until I was well, <laughs> a lot better. Yeah, yeah. But it was just the simple things like that. I started to contribute to Yellow Brick, uh, an open source package, while I was during this period, because that's one of the things that I, I could focus easily with. And that helped me also just being able to be in, contribute during the time that I have to a project like that helped out tremendously. What do you think that is unique about Python in the sense that, in this case, helped you move into this sort of programming mindset? What Were you much of a programmer before this? So the, before that, the only programming language that I had any exposure, and some people won't even say HTML, even though the L stands for language, it would be too much of a language. Yeah, yeah. But I, I started writing code when I was five years old uh, on the Apple basic doing basic. Right. And I didn't, I didn't know it at the time what I was doing, but I knew if I type in these lines of code, there would be graphics on the screen. Sure. And so I would spend all day like in front of this computer, just trying to create graphics. Yeah. 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 Right. But the going back to your other question of why Python is definitely the simplicity of the language, right? It, Whenever I tried to learn JavaScript before, I would just get tired of all the the brackets and everything else that were there. They were just made it visually hard to understand. And with that Python, it separated all of that and there was clean spacing, right? And my brain, for some reason, could understand that a lot better. Uh, the syntax seemed to be able to stream uh, into my brain a lot easier <laughs> than other languages. And I needed that simplicity at that time in my life. Were you reading a lot of other people's code? Was that part of it then? 
Yeah. To, to learn it. Okay. Yeah. I was re- I spent all my time in other people's code. That's, uh, that's how I ended up learning. I didn't maybe a tutorial here and there, but it was basically reading thousand lines of code. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's one unique thing about Python is it is very parsable, you know, for most humans, you can kind of at least see the intent and kind of get an idea. And I talk about, you know, the couple odd duck things that I had to go look up. And that's, those were the first things I taught courses on, you know, like decorators and, and, and type typing and things like that, where I was like, this looks weird. It doesn't, you know, doesn't parse the same way the rest of the language did for me. So that's cool. In the article, you mentioned doing a little bit of teaching of Python also. How did you get into doing that? Well, it's through my um, my link with Matt Harrison and uh, on the Yellow Brick project. Oh, okay. One of the the founders of Yellow Brick was teaching at Georgetown University, and he begged me to teach. And I told him, you know, I've, I'm self-taught Python. You know, I contribute to it, the, but there's no way in the world you should sit me in front of people to teach them this. And he just it was relentless for like two years. He would, every time I would see him, he was like, you need to come <laughs> teach. And finally I was like, you know what? And he, he told, well, what happened? He told me how much I would get paid. And I was like, Oh, maybe that, that sounds very interesting now. Okay. And, and so I got into it and I realized I love it. Okay. Like, I absolutely love it. And it works for me because I connect to beginners. One of the comments that I get from a lot of people is, they feel like I know exactly where they're coming from. Like yeah, yeah. you, you teach like you're like a beginner, like you give me that level. And that's, and I love that. And I could connect with people. I absolutely prefer teaching beginners than uh, any other level of, uh, of learner. Yeah. Sort of a beginner mindset, empathy or <laughs> yeah. you. that's pretty cool. Yeah. I, I enjoy that those moments of light bulbs turning on and, and kind of sharing the early wins and stuff like that. That stuff's always very, very fun. It's been an interesting project. We've been converting all this stuff at RealPython. There's a Python basics books that we have, and we've been converting it into video chapters. And so it's been kind of fun going back into those areas and, and delving into them and you know sharing some of the basics and uh, developing exercises and things like that. You mentioned that in that process that you were teaching some students that were uh, artists also and kind of talking a little bit about creative thinking in that one of the questions I had about that is like you you mentioned that they had clever solutions to problems and, and I thought that was very interesting like what what were some of these solutions that they had and you know how, how do you think that people uh, that have this sort of uh, artistic background, uh, approach programming differently? Yeah. So let me, I can give you an example that my friend reminded me of the other day uh, about the types of questions that I would get. Okay. So my friend was telling me the story is that he was doing for loops. And in the for loops, he basically was doing this little game where if the first letter, he would cycle through boy names and girl names. And if the first letter, of each name match when you go through a for loop, then they were a couple and they get married, right? So okay. Lucy and Lawrence have L's and so they would match up. Right. And then he was wondering, it's like, well, what if I want to 
connect more than just the first letters, right? Like, how do you, what do you, you do with this, right? I don't, I don't know. I only know four loops. <laughs> I only know how to do four loops. <laughs> and he went to go talk to a friend and the friend told him, you can put four loops inside of four loops. And that was like the moment that his head exploded. These are the types of things that they would come to. Yeah, yeah. And that, and for a beginner student, that's like the, uh, for them to realize that you could actually put a for loop in t- inside of a for loop was like more advanced things. This is not a beginner, right, right. <laughs> a beginner <laughs> concept that someone would come up on their own. I, I've talked hundreds of students and none of them have ever, and I go to the art school, these are the types of things that they're coming to on their own of simple things that, oh, I can do nested for loops. And I'm looking and I'm thinking, this is crazy. Uh, where are you? Where do you get? No one's ever taught you this, but you you've come up with it on your own. So those yeah, yeah. types of things—they're simple. They're not major discoveries, but they're simple enough that they're thinking a little bit more differently than your average student does. Yeah, I I feel that there's a, been a very interesting way of teaching. Also, that I've had a few people on lately talking about teaching beginners and kind of different approaches of that, of, of maybe not trying to explain everything to them, uh, of like giving them enough information that, that maybe then they come back with the question. <laughs> they go, well, wait, 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 can I, can I do this or, you know, whatever. And I think that's such a, that form of discovery creates this buy-in that isn't there in a lot of other types of educational things where it's like, nope, just memorize these things. And it's like very, very different. You know, it's much more exploratory. So I I, I can kind of see what you're coming from. What were kinds of the what were some of the projects and things that they were creating in these classes? Um very, very simple things. Uh we did a lot we do a lot of pair programming. Okay. Which I think is essential. But we would do card games. We would do some data analysis stuff. So the the program that I taught in was for data analysis and data visualization at our art school. Yeah. Because they're heavy. One of the things that they're really good at is the visualization part. And so right. they're skilled at that. Make the data look pretty. <laughs> Make it look pretty. But they, they, were, they struggled with the data analysis and they wanted to learn Python in order to get a grasp of that aspect. So we did some pandas and matplotlib and those libraries and things like that. Are you a developer striving for top-notch application performance? Meet your new ally, Site247 from Zoho Corp. With Site247, you get real-time insights into critical performance metrics like app deck scores, response times, and throughput. It's your secret weapon to swiftly identify performance bottlenecks and issues that can slow down your applications and affect the digital experience for your customers. Optimize your application's performance like a pro with Site247's AI-powered full-stack monitoring platform. For more information, visit Site247.com. Don't forget to try their 30-day free trial. That's SITE24X7.com. Kind of going back to the book and kind of turning it back around, you write this first chapter that isn't 
per se about Python specifically, but more about how Python is related to higher order thinking. What what prompted you to write a chapter that's focused at that at the beginning of your book? Yeah. So whenever I decided to write the book, this wasn't the book that I planned on writing. Like I wanted to do a straight up technical book. These are the basics of Python. I've taught this course forever. I did, I have a Udemy course centered around this and I know how to teach this and it's successful, right? That was my approach, yeah, Okay. right? And I, I go to acquisition editor and he sits me down and said, we're just going to have a conversation, <laughs> right? Okay. And, and it's like, I see this book and it sound, sounds good. This is type of, this is at Manning. And it's like, this is type of book we would publish, but I want to know what book lives inside of you. Hmm. Like this has become like this very different conversation than me just saying, I, I want to publish a, this purely beginner's textbook, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. And we started talking and it just emerged from me that the reason that I enjoy Python is because I enjoy the way it makes me feel when I'm thinking about it. Okay. I, I'm more focused. I'm there. All these other cognitive things are are happening within me. And I experienced this r- real life. Right. It changed the way that I thought. And he's like, that's the story we, we want to tell. Right. Yeah. That's we have plenty of Python books. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Even that Manning <laughs> itself. <laughs> Beyond yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Especially beginner books. There's there's lots of those out there. So, yeah. Yeah. Again, kind of tying it back to stuff that we kind of began with a little bit here. Why do you think that this higher order thinking is crucial for an AI, you know, focused society or where things are headed as far as the the job market? Yeah. So and I give some statistics in the in the chapter. Like there are certain areas of work that are going to be just decimated by by AI. But the one thing, and I mentioned this earlier, the things that they you can't do that's that's uniquely human is human intelligence and human creativity. Yeah, right. That's something you just can't manufacture. And so, and a part of that creativity and human intelligence aspects, you start thinking about critical thinking, analytical thinking, computational thinking, all these other elements that are really our savior in us to function in this new world that we're going into. And so the ideal of amplifying those skills or finding a way to amplify them, like your everyday person, like I'm a trained scientist, right? I've been trained to think this way, right? Over 20 some odd years, sure. right? The normal person doesn't have to do analytical thinking. That's just and so how do you get them to the point of being able to do analytical thinking? I think that tool to do that or that path is Python. How do you feel Python helps in this goal? Well, I think the ideal of problem solving, we get back to problem solving, right? Okay. And having, and the fact that it's a great tool for problem solving, you have to employ a lot of these thinking techniques in order to, to solve problems. So they, they force you to think a certain way. And so the, it's the, since things become a lot, Python does a great job of simplifying problems, right? 
And so what you're able to do is whenever you take a complex problem and you subdivide into subproblems, right, you're able to look at it and apply different types of thinking without really knowing that you're doing analytical thinking. I don't think anyone comes up and says, oh, I'm doing analytical thinking, but the problem itself forces you to think that way, right? Yeah, yeah. And so it's it becomes inherent in ability. It's basically you're, you're taking apart a transmission, right? Yeah. Right? And you're using your wrench. And then once you get all the parts kind of taken apart and everything that you need to do, You've learned something about the parts and you've learned how to assemble or disassemble something. And you be, and I think this the way that Python works in your disassembly of problems and that disassemblement is actually what allows you to gain these cognitive abilities because you have to figure out how to disassemble something. And in that process, you're going to learn critical thinking or critical reasoning. Right? Are you going to think analytically about the problem that you're working on? It just becomes the best tool to actually disassemble things and allow you to tackle problems in that way. If that makes any sense at all. No, no, it does. Like I, I, one of the things that has been interesting about covering Python for you know four years is how many different approaches you can have to python not not just fields and libraries and tools and so forth but you can be a quote unquote script writer that is like a you know a very simple recipe <laughs> do this step do this step do this step do this step and even doing that requires a certain amount of cognitive thinking and and you know like you said sort of breaking a problem into its steps and and following it down but as you advance you can get into sort of functional type of thinking and processing certain things. And then you can also approach it from an object-oriented way of looking at it. All these things are possible in Python, depending on the direction that you want to go, which is really kind of fascinating. It's, you know, we haven't said it, but this is a common thing that is said, that Python's like the second best language, you know, (laughs) for all these different things. And the Truth is that that's fantastic because then you have this universal set of tools. It may not be, you know, the fanciest whatever saw or whatever, but it it gets the job done. You know, you don't need this specialized thing always. You can always go to this standard set of tools, which I think is kind of neat. And so part of the goal that you have then is to help people realize that that that's what you're doing in, in this idea, this idea that you're there were like sort of four core concepts that that you mentioned in computational thinking, right? Right. The problem decomposition, the pattern recognition. Maybe we could talk about, like, I think pattern recognition is fairly easy and problem decomposition we just talked about, but uh, abstraction, like what what do you mean by that in computational thinking? So in computational thinking, abstraction would be recognizing the part of the problem that can be applied to other problems. Okay. Like uh, take for instance uh, the uh, messy bookshelf problem that I presented in a chapter. Right. Sure. Uh, this problem is simple: that you have a disorganized bookshelf, and you want to reorganize it by author and genre and author's last name or something like that. And what you end up coming to is that 
what's very the way that you solve this problem is just simply sorting. Like that's the core of the of mechanism to solve this problem. Okay. Abstraction is basically seeing that aspect and saying, hey, I know how to sort. Let me apply that to another problem that sorting might fix for. And that's the abstraction to be able to see one problem and abstract what makes it work yeah. and apply it to other problems. And the sort of reusability of it then that you could yeah. say, I'm I'm sorting the genres, but inside that it goes back to the for loops again inside of for loops potentially, of I'm gonna sort the by the last name of the author with inside of that or what have you. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And then at the end of that, the last sort of four core, the fourth core concept was uh, algorithmic thinking and what's meant by that. Oh, it's just the step-by-step that basically what steps you're taking to solve the problem. Okay. Nothing, nothing more than that. Just those repeatable steps that will always give you the same solution. Okay. So developing that, that pattern or whatever the yeah. algorithmic. Okay. So one of the things that you mentioned and that we kind of were trying to highlight here a little bit is this sort of optimism for the future of work and what are the areas that you see in it that, you know, besides this idea that there is this potential avenue of learning, programming, and potentially working with AI in the sense of like solving problems with it and creating things and kind of being a partner with it. But what are other things that you feel like ways that you're optimistic about the future here? Well, <laughs> great question. I, in the healthcare space, I'm really excited about AI helping therapy. I I think alongside therapists or any mental health practitioner, there's going to be a space for AI to interact with people just like ChatGPT. I think that's going to be essential. There's a a service called Pi right now that is supposed to be your assistant, but they kind of help you in a companion type of way. I think the possibility for we have what are called these tests that can be read by clinicians nowadays to actually better identify someone that's bipolar. Imagine AI coming in and being able to assist with that, right? That leaves, by having AI come in and do all these diagnostic type things, that leaves time for the the worker or the uh, who else to come in and basically form that human human connection right sure and that's what i what was is weird but i think ai is going to have us come together because you can't r- take away the social aspect of our lives right yeah and so what ai will do is that people will now have to be like the types of careers they are not going to away are those jobs that require some social connection, right? Okay. So I, I think what I'm optimistic is that we're going to become a greater people by our social connections, that we are going to form more social connections th- throughout this, because that's what makes us uniquely uh, human, right? That, uh, that yeah. ability to form those. So I think there's a stumbling block there that I hope we can get past, because I feel that a lot of Larger organizations often look at like a cost-saving measure of let's have AI answer the phone for me or let's have AI answer this call center problem or whatever. 
And you hope that it's like what you're saying, a triaging per se of the problem and making it so that more people can be helped because there's less of, you know, human resources being spent on this triage step of like, well, what, what, how do I get to the the person to the right person? And instead of like having them bounce around a phone tree or whatever. And so that, I wonder like how sometimes like how we get past that. Cause like I had this story recently about a Reuven Lerner. He had a problem on, on Facebook where he was doing advertising and the whatever simplistic AI system that was there a couple of years ago thought that he was training live animals because his training involved pandas and Python. And so he was, went to then contest that. And the contestation unfortunately was with an AI type of thing too. And it said, Oh no, no, that's correct. And so there wasn't really sort of a human element. Maybe this will get corrected or whatever, but it was just kind of an interesting thing. So he's banned from advertising on meta because, you know, he's obviously a a Python trainer who works with pandas also. (laughs) The same exact thing. I I read that article. The same exact thing happened to me on meta. I got got banned. Yes. Uh, okay. <laughs> it, it was like the day after that article came out and I was doing some advertisements uh oh weird uh on Facebook and it and it said you know your account is within 180 <laughs> days if you don't respond your account is gone. And did you read And so I immediately I immediately appealed it because I read in his article that he had waited. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that he had waited for that. So I wasn't going to wait. <laughs> okay. It's too funny, but so I wonder about that a little bit like I hope their le- lessons will be learned in the, in optimizing this process, you know, because I I do feel like there's still this need, right? And and I do agree with you that that's really what human beings are really good at is like you know interacting and solving problems that are you know not all shaped exactly the same. <laughs> so. One of the things that you talked a little bit about is this uh, reskilling of workers, which I thought was kind of an interesting thing. That's that's uh, always been an interesting topic to me. That this idea of this investment by companies, in fact, they'll be like, you know, oh, we got to send people to a certain amount of training every year or whatever. And you mentioned the the percentages there. I'll, maybe I'll let you just take over. But where do you think that maybe? Programming and Python might come in there with the the reskilling of workers. I I don't think they've made the connections. Like whenever I read the number is one percent of their budget, it, that to me just just spoke that they're not really serious about this as as because they're not putting the money behind that. If they truly realize or understood that people need to be more. Uh, think more analytically yeah, yeah. or they should be focusing. They, they've done the research. It's not, it's like I found the research from them that says we need more creative people. We need more analytical people and we're going to invest 1% of our money into doing this. And we know it's important. It isn't, I don't think they're serious about it until we move further along. You know, most businesses don't act. There's only, there's, you know, the early adopters that are really doing this, but there's a few. Right. Yeah. 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 And so you get the late stage people and it would be 10, 15, maybe 20 years from now where they're thinking, oh, we should be reskilling our workforce now. <laughs> yeah. So because no one I don't think anyone's made the connection that says, hey, if I go train someone in Python, 
they're going to be able to do their job in HR a lot better that has nothing to do with computers at all. That is a big leap. It's a big leap I have to convince people of sure. that, that they can, these skills are actually transferable, right? That you can learn Python and then go get another job as a social worker and you're a better social worker, right? And so companies have not made that connection. And until there's like full proof, because it's still in the research, it's still contentious also, this idea that these skills are transferable from one domain to the next. Yeah, I I can see some of those situations where an office worker wants to be able to solve some of their own problems, like and and create their own tools. And Python is a is very useful in that. I was involved in a lot of those kinds of conversations. It's always intriguing though. Sometimes you run into like unfortunately there were a couple of jobs that I worked where it was very much of a secure type environment. It was a law firm or it was a, a bank or what have you. And so the idea of like creating these automated solutions always were like, well, I got to figure out how I can like build this application to help this other person over there. And then I had to like move the application over to their computer. It was like not something where I could like, you know, put it up on the internet and we could interact in that way. So I always find that always kind of interesting. When you think of these skills you know, not only sort of like efficiency types of things, you're also saying this idea of, well, it can just change the way they think about problems and kind of how to solve them. Is that kind of what you're you're digging into there? Yeah, just that if Python, as I, I've explained it, is supposed to enhance your analytical thinking skills okay, uh, or, or your critical thinking skills, then you should be able to take those skills and work on non-Python-related problems and be better at them, right? So that, that's the claim that I'm, I'm making. There's some research to support that. And there's some, some research that says we don't have any evidence for or against this, right? So it's still out there. But I think since I've learned Python, my approach to solving problems has dramatically changed. Okay. What were some of the things that you feel like changed in there? Like, can you quantify it with uh, with some examples? <laughs> so modular thinking, like, okay, that that wasn't a a concept to me in how I approach of as a bench science scientist how I approach my problems that I was like putting them in different sections and trying to then have them all interact. Right. That's a very different type of thinking than than what a scientist does every day. So simply just learning the program and thinking about things in modules okay. is a new way of thinking, right? So stuff like along those lines can change the way that someone approaches a problem. And then we get into like object-oriented programming, right? The way that you think along those lines. They're just... And so the... My claim isn't that Python is the only way. I think Python is an easy way to do this. I think programming in general will will give someone the help someone with these additional uh, skill development. Okay, so you feel like by learning this sort of problem solving subset, it kind of awakens a different set of skills within someone's brain. Like they can say, okay. Um, I'm now thinking like a problem solver in a different way. Like, is that part of it? Like the just overall 
you, you kind of mentioned these cognitive benefits. Right. Yeah. So I, I think it overall that it just, like you said, it ignites. I don't know if that's, <laughs> that's <laughs> if, okay. we go back, yeah. if we go back to my example of where I was in my life, it definitely ignited something for me. It, okay. It, it, it actually allowed me to, to think in ways that I was not thinking before. And it allowed me to think when I couldn't even verbalize, like literally couldn't talk uh, about things at, at times. I could actually type it out and actually get Python to do it. And it allowed me to solve problems. And it made me feel human, right? So. Okay. That's interesting. Like, do you feel like it's in a form of uh, empowerment if you feel kind of like, like I can't accomplish something right now by doing this coding and, and solving these problems. It's it's sort of empowering something within the person too. Oh, most most definitely. I, I think it's uh, its own reward system. Whenever <laughs> I'm I'm developing and I fix a problem, it's very very <laughs> rewarding. And do I get a dopamine hit hit from it? Yes, <laughs> without question. <laughs> This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another RealPython video course. We mentioned looping multiple times in this week's episode, and this course covers a useful and Pythonic way to loop. If you're coming to Python from another language, you might be using an index to loop over an iterable object in a for loop. Instead of using that index and incrementing each iteration, there's a tool built into Python to make it easier and more elegant. This video course is titled Looping with Python Enumerate. It's based on a written tutorial by Brian Weber. And in the video lessons, previous guest, Philip Xeni, shows you how to use enumerate to get a counter within a loop, how to apply the enumerate function to display item counts. You'll learn how to unpack values returned by the enumerate function. And then you'll learn how to implement your own version of an equivalent function. The enumerate function is a great way to add a counter to your loops and simplifies your code. And this course is a good example of how you can learn a new Python concept and skill in just a few minutes during a break in your regular daily routine. Like most of the video courses on RealPython, the course is broken into easily consumable sections, and all RealPython courses have a transcript, including closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the search tool on realpython.com. You have this uh, term that I wasn't familiar with, this uh, Bloom's taxonomy that you mentioned in the chapter. And I kind of want to talk about it a little bit because I brought up like a Wikipedia thing on it. And there's actually like a, it seems like it's gone through some, I don't know, itera iterations or, or sort of lots of people thinking about this idea of maybe past uh, Benjamin Bloom originally kind of uh, generating it. But do you want to talk a little bit about that? Um, Bloom's taxonomy, okay, and where it kind of fits into this conversation. Yeah, so Bloom taxonomy basically is a pyramid. And at the base of this pyramid is like rote memorization. Like your cognitive ability is that you can remember something and you can recall it, right? Sure. So at the top end uh, of this pyramid, at the very tip, you're talking about synthesizing or creating information. So as you move up the pyramid, you're going to, oh, I can, I understand, 
right? Which is more than just memorization and recall. Okay. And then you can just go up to different steps. And actually, as you move up this pyramid, you get to having more ability, enough ability to synthesize new information. Okay. So it's interesting because I think about, in general, quote unquote, what computers have been good at (laughs) up to this point. And remembering has always been something that computers are fantastic at. You know, you give them facts, you give them things, and they can spit them back to you and, and so forth. And I feel like there are certain steps along the way that people have tried to do with AI that I think are kind of interesting. The trick I have with it is I feel like a lot of people are jumping to the top of the pyramid. Again, to reiterate something I said at the beginning, and that part I I get less excited by. I, I, I like the idea of it doing the remembering for me, you know, this sort of outboard brain part. I like, I mean... How many people remember phone numbers today? <laughs> and they used to be just a common thing. Everybody, you know, had literally, I don't know, maybe 50 to 100 phone numbers memorized in their brain at all times. And we just don't even do it anymore because they're with us at all time. And similarly, like the idea of having assistance in analyzing things and uh, and so forth, I like a lot of that and that sort of synthesis, that sort of stuff. And, but but I I wonder a little bit about like, Again, this sort of skipping steps. Do you think about that at all? Like the the, the <laughs> leaping uh, up Bloom's taxonomy for AI. <laughs> yeah. So, like analyze. I I use AI for this all the time, right? Sure. Evaluation. I find AI very lacking in this, but people are trying to get it to justify or stand or make a decision, right? Right. And that's the hard part. And a lot of people aren't comfortable with that that area of evaluation, nor are we, we have some creation, but it really, is it really <laughs> creation? Yeah, but, it's really mix. <laughs> it's more of a mixing. It's kind of yeah. interesting what it does, yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, so are we really, are people, and this is why I say that being human intelligence and creativity and social connections are so important because I don't think as a society, we're going to fully get to the point where we allow for the all evaluation and all creation to occur through AI. Yeah. And I'm an AI engineer, and this is my, this is my stance. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Well, I, I wonder, I don't know, it's it's very interesting time, and it, it's always kind of like a weird thing to t- talk about. And I, I've kind of been shy to talk a lot about it even though i'm on a python podcast and so much of the tooling and other things that are happening are are being you know used in this realm and the reason is i just feel like i i've always wanted it to be a teaching podcast (laughs) and i want people to play with the stuff and and build things on their own and create with it and I'm still learning and I'm having some other people coming up on upcoming shows to talk a little bit more about that sort of uh, using the tools in helping you create things or refactor code or uh, do these other kinds of stuff. And so that that part I, I still kind of find interesting, and but I'm still kind of down at this little lower level where I'm kind of like a little bit at what you're trying to do with your book of like, I still want to excite humans <laughs> to like, 
learn programming and and get involved in doing stuff like this and 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 that's where i feel like i want to keep like you are trying to do pushing people forward like hey you can do this here's some fun things that you can do with this here's this interesting thing you can do with it and so forth and is that part of what you feel like the goal of your book is too like in a way like that you want to sort of push people forward and say hey like you you can do this thing and it's it's more of a I, w- I want to give you some tools for unlocking your ability to do it. Yeah. So since Python has had such a positive impact on my life, yeah, I just wholeheartedly feel that it can have that same type of impact. So I taught my mother how to do Python. She's 70 years old. Oh, wow. Cool. She's not, she can go through a for loop. That's about it. But she sat <laughs> down and learned and wanted to, understand but i think given the right strategy getting as many people through the python pipeline is like my ultimate goal that it touches as many people like i'm excited to go to the education summit for python this year because uh, there are so many people in underserved communities that have no knowledge of python yeah and i think and if i truly believe my own what i'm saying is that this can change the way that you think and prepare you for the future. I feel that it's a responsibility of me to make sure I get it to as many people as possible. That makes sense. Yeah, I've I've enjoyed attending. I'm always working <laughs> when I go to like PyCon and so forth. But I, I was, uh, always try to attend for a little while and um, I meet up with my friends, uh, Sean and Kelly from Teaching Python, who are, have been involved in the Education Summit very often at PyCon. What do you feel like are other takeaways that people can get? Or is this chapter something that you plan on sharing um, online yeah, that somebody can share with uh, my listeners here? Yeah. Uh, so I will, the first chapter is always free at Manning. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I will send you a, a cleaned up, edited version of it. But okay. most definitely share it out with the community. I will have it on my uh, social platforms also. Cool. What do you, what do you feel like should be the important takeaways that you want people to get out of checking out this first chapter? That being human is is awesome. Like <laughs> even in the age of AI, being human is is going to be an awesome thing. Cool. So there, I have these questions I like to ask everybody, mm-hmm. and the first one is: What's something that you're excited about in the world of Python right now? Surprisingly, I'm excited about a couple things. Okay. Alan Downey is going to release his book, probably overthinking it. So I'm excited to read that. It's coming out in December, I think. That's the title, Overthinking It? Yeah, probably Overthinking It, which is based on his blog series that he's been doing. And so he. Oh, okay. I'm interested in the evolution of Scikit-Learn right now. Uh, they do visual diagnostics, which is what Yellow Brick does. Okay. And I would like to see how they evolve that within their package. So th- that's what I'm excited about there as far as open source go. Yeah. And truly excited about PyCon 2024. I want to go to Pittsburgh. Yeah, yeah. I want to attend the Education <laughs> Summit. I'm going to submit a talk. It is how Python saved my life and how it might save the world. Oh, cool. So that's the... T- <laughs> All right. People, people can look forward to that. I hope, you, hope it gets accepted. That sounds good. What's something that you want to learn next? This doesn't have to be about programming or Python. It can be just something you want to learn. It, it is about programming. So I'm lucky that 
I was doing a lot of machine learning prior to my current job. And my company is so awesome. <laughs> and they, they hired me and said, you can take time during work to learn deep learning. Okay. So what I'm learning next is a lot of PyTorch, a lot of uh, Kiros, and some other platforms. So, and I get to do it on the job. So that's great. What are there particular things that you're researching in that process? A lot of computer vision and stuff. Okay. So some of our projects are really interesting where we look for foreign object detection on runways. This is pretty... Oh, okay. And so that people can actually clear runways and things. So we use computer vision in order to do that. So... Yeah, that's pretty important. (laughs) 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 Got to keep things clear. (laughs) Yeah, I live in uh, Colorado Springs, which I think people, some people know, but uh, we have a a lot of a uh, lot of runways here because of the Air Force and and other things like that, bases and stuff. So, so Larry, what? How can people follow the work that you're doing online? Uh, go to lawrencegray.com/slash/python. Okay, you can find everything that I do. Do you have a an estimate on when you think your book might be coming out? I'm not trying to rush you or anything. <laughs> It'll be 14 months. So okay. it's a 15 month deal. So I've only, I've gone through one month. So. Okay. Yeah. Just getting going. Well, that's great. Yeah. Well, Larry, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been fantastic to talk to you. Well, thank you for having me. And don't forget, I'm reminding you once again to try the site 24 seven 30 day free trial to identify and debug your application performance issues like a pro. Happy monitoring. That's S-I-T-E-24X7.com. I want to thank my guest, Larry Gray, for coming on the show this week. And I want to thank you for listening to The Real Python Podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that The Real Python Podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.